Walgorga is a banana area in New South Wales, and it was developed by Sikhs. And at one stage, over 50% of the population of this town was Sikh. Uh, and now it's down about 30%. It's, it's a very big, fairly big town. They have two uh, Gurdwaras in there, and um, it's, it's basically the, the centre of Sikhism in Australia. And we, we set up a mu- we were asked to uh, contribute to the museum, Sikh museum there, which we did. And then they asked us to do this research, and it'll be the first book written uh, where most of the books, uh, the history that's been written is before they come to Australia and then after they've arrived. We're trying now to marry because when the Indians came to Australia, Sikhs included, they didn't come as migrants. They came here as itinerant workers with the intention of going home. Hi, I'm Sagrad Singh from Sikh Archive and welcome to the 42nd episode of our podcast series of conversations with historians, authors, academics, researchers and activists on topics related to the areas of expertise on Sikh or Punjabi history. And in this episode, we are joined by Len Kenner and Crystal Jordan, who are from the Australian Indian Historical Society. They have devoted decades of their time into researching the history of Indian migration to Australia and the contribution made in the early days of settlement. They have also authored the book Sikh History in Australia. And we discuss today what inspired them to enter this field of study, how their research methods have evolved over time, what their findings were and what more can be done. In addition to that, we also pay close attention to the Sikh and Punjabi migration story to Australia. But before we start, a quick message about our sponsor of this episode from Sikh Student Learning, which is an educational resource that is developing a comprehensive Sikh Studies modular program for Sikh children aged between 4 to 16 years with the option to take exams for modules and obtain certificates of achievement. And right now they've published a new series of Gurmukhi learning workbooks for those looking to learn how to read and write Punjabi. They are an excellent resource for new parents wanting to teach their children the culturally rich mother tongue that is Punjabi. You can find them at www.sixstudentlearning.co.uk. But now, back to the podcast that we have planned for you today. Who are Len Kenner and Crystal Jordan? I'm a native-born Australian. I was born in country Victoria, uh, and uh, I've been interested in uh, Australian poetry history and, you know, things Australian, Australian bush, and um, university educated, as well as uh, School of Hard Knocks. And um, we got, I got asked to do this by Multicultural Victoria to research Indians in Victoria, the state of Australia, uh, and uh, we immediately expanded it for, to all of Australia. And uh, most of our work is basically, or about 80% of our work is on Sikhs because that was the uh, 
most dominant migration pattern that came to Australia in the 19th century and early 20th century. I grew up in Hamilton, the country town. The sea hawkers used to come to my home uh, and uh, my mother bought goods off them. And he sometimes or quite often stayed and cooked our evening meal for us. Uh, The other thing was that uh, my grandparents went to India uh, before I was born and my grandmother painted charcoal paintings and she went to Kashmir and all over. And so I had an interest in uh, Indians right from the start. The other thing was that Hamilton, my hometown, was a major horse sales place. And between... uh, 1800, 1816, basically, to the start of the Second World War, Australia exported uh, about, I don't know how many thousand horses, about half, about 300,000, wasn't it, Chris? More, yeah. yeah. probably more. And uh, for every eight horses that were sent to India, they had to have a groom, Australian groom with them. And because so many horses were sold in Hamilton and transported to India with the Australian uh, grooms or drovers, as we call them, uh, there was a lot of stories going around the town. There was also over 100 Indian hawkers that were based in Hamilton. So, And then we had the petition and the parish priest had a brother in uh, the Punjab and Sunday at Mass uh, he'd read letters of the atrocities and how difficult it was for both the Sikh and Muslim people. And then we saw Gandhi and uh, the movies and newspapers. So basically it was, um, I grew up with things Indian. So for me it was a bit different. My interest in India mainly came from the fact my father was born in India and my grandfather was in the 4th Worcester Regiment um, and he served in Bareilly in India for several years. Um, He had five children with him at that time and his wife. And so they were Hindi speakers. They spoke fluent Hindi and I often heard stories about India and I was quite interested in drawing pictures and things of Indian soldiers and interested in the terrain and and the geography of India. And we grew up eating curries and things like that, which was different to a lot of the other Australian children. But we did migrate. I was born in England and we migrated to Australia in 1948. So when Len um, started doing the history in about 1985, he was working on his own. And then when he was commissioned to do more of the Victorian history of Indians in Australia, he found there was just so much information in the archives and I had been doing illustrations and things for him and he asked me to help him. So he's trained me in the way he does his research and uh, we've thought it was just going to be one book and it's still going. <laughs> it's like a life sentence. <laughs> After how many books? After about 14 books or something. So we're still going and uh, we thought it would be like an eight-year or ten-year journey, but it's going to be a life journey for us. And could you please provide a brief overview 
of how Indian-Australian migration started. If you'd read my book, you would have seen that uh, Australia and uh, uh, India have a long history. It goes back to Gudwada land when uh, the continents drifted north India spurred off and we're still joined, Australia and India is geographically joined to India and Australia by the Indian plate, uh, and that's subterranean. And uh, from the time after Vaxagana or even before, well before that, India was the, and China were the two largest economies in the world and they traded with each other. And with the monsoon winds, Indians would have no doubt touched on the Australian coastline when they were travelling to China, same as the Chinese. And uh, before Captain Cook uh, discovered, in inverted commas, uh, the east coast of Australia, the uh, Macassans were uh, coming to northern Australia for beach timber, a little bit of gold, hardwood timber, things like that, taking it back and selling it into the trading network. From there, when uh, Australia was established, the uh, Indian uh, East, East India Trump Trading Company was at its strength and it insisted that there be trading prohibitations put on Australia, on the, on the new colony, New South, well, new South Wales. And when the first fleet uh, of 11 ships sailed to Australia, Nine were owned and or under the control of the English East India Trading Company with Indian sailors. Uh, and uh, Governor Philip, our first governor, and uh, his officer corps had served in, uh, they recalled from the uh, East India Naval Base in Bombay to form the uh, first fleet to come to Australia. There was a very strong connection with India from the start. Then the, the colony... Uh, um, started start to have difficulty feeding itself and starvation. So uh, Governor Philip sent uh, Lieutenant Bowen to Calcutta to buy food, and as a result of that, the English ordered that all stores for Australia, uh, if they could be bought cheaper anywhere else in the world, including animals, horses, cows, sheep, were to be bought from, from India. And as a result of that, in the first 20 or 30 years, all the uh, animals the uh, uh, and uh, the horses and that sort of thing were all Indian and South African. Our first exports of coal and timber didn't go to England, they went to India. So we had that interrelation. Most of the ships calling into Australia uh, had Indian sailors on board. After the second fleet in uh, 1792, that one third of the uh, of the convicts died, and the rest were basically very sick. They ordered that all convicts coming to Australia had to be transported on ships owned by the English East India Trading Company, and as a consequence, they were manned by Indian sailors. And so you can see the strong connection in the early years with India and things Indian and with the incoming food and all that sort of thing from India. Most of the soldiers that came had served in India previously and then after about, I think it was eight years, they started rotating soldiers from England to India, Australia 
and Australian back to India, vice versa, uh, for their tours. So the, all the, the battalions are sent uh, from England to India also sent regiments to Australia, and then they rotated back to India, and it was interrelated, and uh, it started right from the start, and uh, that has been maintained all the way through up until about the First World War. And a lot of um, the um, European soldiers that were in India were also born in India. So um, there's quite a history we've got accumulated with. The first four governors of early New South Wales, they had served in in, uh, India. And when do we begin to see the migration and settlement of Indians in Australia? Well, about the 1880s, really, wasn't it? Well, they come in dribbles right from the Second Fleet in 1792, slowly built up, and the word was taken back to India, word of mouth and that sort of thing, and encouraged migration. And for the Sikhs, uh, there were Sikhs here in the 1860s, but the the biggest migration or the most... A uh, number of Sikhs to come to Australia started in the uh, late 1870s through to uh, 1900. But to add to that, what Len said is in 1843 we have uh, Darby Singh who came out here with um, uh, as a, a sheep um, herder. He was and going to be a, uh, a shepherd. He, yeah, he was a shepherd and uh, there was a 23 came with that group. And his son was born here in 1845. So the first Sikh born here was, or Singh born here, was 1845. But they were from Benares in Varanasi, yes. So from then on, most of the hawkers and cane cutters and people like that, 1880s and 90s, we've got them coming from there then. And also from Kashmir. And you never, we'll never know how many came. By this census have been taken and they say a couple of thousand and this sort of thing, but that's a load of rubbish because Australia at that time, as you could imagine, had open ports, no customs, no, and the ships could come in, offload and go off and nobody knew what was going on. And even... Uh, even with when they got to ports like Sydney and Melbourne, they just jumped ship and just walked out. Yeah. And uh, there was a network of, uh, from the religious groups for the Sikhs and Muslims. They picked them up and uh, funneled them in and got them work and looked after them. And there were many thousands, many, many thousands uh, jumped ship and, and uh, entered Australia illegally and then went back the same way. And, and we have several of those who have descendants here today and um, it's in their family history that that is how they entered Australia. But in the Muslim research that I'm doing from Kashmir, I haven't found one that came here legally. And how do you go about capturing these histories? What are some of the research methods you use to collect all of this information? Well, the research methods have uh, changed because we've been doing this for that long. The first research come 
from when I was a kid, talking to the hawker that came and I was while sitting on his knee and he'd tell me stories of uh, India, his journey to Australia and on the ships and how he was received and, you know, and, and moving around, his, uh, around selling goods and that sort of thing. And that was over the evening, uh, with the evening meal or sometimes it was just afternoon tea. I used to play on his horse and cart when he left it out the front uh, and and then t- watching the uh, movie tone uh, movies for and the pre- uh, with Gandhi and the division and the priest and that sort of thing and from there it built that uh, if I met an Indian I would talk to them and uh, about things that, that and get as much information as I could but from there once I was asked by the government to research it I used primary and primary documents. All our work is off primary documents. Uh, And if somebody tells us something, we don't believe it until we confirm it. So there's no word of mouth. We use the word of mouth as the opening to go and research further. Uh, Chris, I brought her on as my research assistant. She opens all the official documents. 80% of all the official documents you see around the world now have been opened by Chris, at our expense, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) And um, so uh, after getting the documents, then you have to, it's not like they don't say, they say Indians, da-da-da. You got it because it was, the documents were compiled by the English, it's, English orientated and, and dominated by English hegemony. So you've got to siphon off what, what the Indian contribution is because Indians become British and then British become English. And when you get followed back, you find out that uh, they're not English, they're Indians. No, and so all, most British. Of, yeah, no, 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 British. But most of the contribution that India did in Australia has been stolen by the British. An example of that is the Sydney Cove ship that landed on uh, an island in Bass Strait in, in 1797. And they walked all the way, the 17 survivors walked all the way from Melbourne to Sydney, 800, 900 kilometres through the bush. And it wouldn't have been a straight, that's stripped as a crow flies, but they would have walked twice, maybe three times that, without food. But the records say they were British. And there was three Anglo-Indians and 14 Indians, and they were from Bengal. And that's what we're up against. We're not, it's not only clean, it's the, the records are dirty that we've got to use. We have to interpret and go back and... Uh, uh, then once we got onto the computers, then it's much easier, and but it's also uh, it's it's holding us back because people reinterpret it to their own advantage, and we're forever correcting people's statements where they've just got something off the internet, quoted it, and because we don't want lies to become the truth. So it's a dog chasing its tail all the time, trying to research and try to keep our research pure. And the other thing is we started before the internet. So when we first started researching, you had to go down, get on the tram, go to the city, order the files, and you could only order so many at a certain time. And one particular library, um, there was shelves of books we could just take off and look at, and they've all been put into storage now. 
And if we go back to check in, you can only order three of those at any time. And if we've ordered the wrong three, you've got to wait another week. So it was so slow in the beginning, but we were getting a lot of information. But as time's gone on, we're getting less information quicker. (laughs) (laughs) But I, I, I was lucky in a way because... I live in Bandura and I studied at the Latrobe University, which is in Bandura, and I used to go down to the bellows in the university library and all the books I wanted were in one shelf around me and it was like a little office with my own set of books and I could go and I might have 30, 40 books out tracing somebody's journey and and they'd leave the books for me. It was for my exclusive use. It was just arranged with the uh, the staff, but not not official. But all that changed. I could get one book, two book, three book, and all of a sudden it's a week apart. Sometimes we had them on two or three tables, and we could go backwards and forwards and go and have lunch, and they'd still be there. And a lot were dispatches and things like that. That why, why from, the, from the seventeen. Yeah, why that was. We were the first to write Australian Indian history. Nobody had, uh, yeah, there was a couple of documents written by uh, academics, but to sit down and do a composite history of Sikhs, Indians, Muslims and, and Anglo-Indians, we were the first. We we opened the floodgates. And, and you had to sort of do, we've been criticised for doing all Indians, but to do all Indians gave a, a whole type of history which shows how much input has actually been put into the, it's almost equal to the British, how much development in Australia has been through India, from India. See, why we had to do all Indians is because in the 19th uh, and early 20th century, the Indians have come out here and they mix socially and Economically, they'd mix, uh, and there's a division now. But uh, so you couldn't pick out the Sikh bloke and put him there and write about him. It had to be the the whole the whole bit. And what and what happened to the Muslims also happened to the Sikhs. And forget the Hindus; there wasn't many of them. Uh, <laughs> but you could use you could compare and contrast between the two. Can I ask you now about some of your findings? maybe some of the stories in particular that really stood out for you in this journey? Well, the, the first impressive finding is the fact that there was so much material available. That was the first, and it hadn't been used. Uh, but to get to a particular thing, I think the role the East India Trading Company played in Australia, that was uh, was massive. Uh, and uh, the fact that they could... Uh, that the British government had to kowtow to them before Australia could be settled. That was interesting. But the landing of the uh, Sydney Cove on the Victorian coast, that was the uh, most important thing uh, because every other state in Australia knows how they originated. Victoria doesn't because they don't, the English didn't want the story to come out because it wasn't English. So they buried it. We don't know how we started. It's ridiculous. Everything's documented. We don't know. Uh, but then I think the most, um, for me, moving and personal uh, is Siva Singh. 
the reading of the first, the Grand Sahib, the first reading or known reading, because it's in a country town that I like, and uh, it just um, encapsulates the whole of the uh, the ethos of Indians at that time. And it, we've got the photo, the, we've got the hand of the photo, and he's, they're having, conducting reading, the reading in an Australian setting. And I said about finding out, first of all, where it was. We didn't know where it was. I found where it was. I found the exact site. I can go and say they were sitting exactly there while they were reading the first Grand Sahib. And then we uh, got offered the wagon that he carried the Grand Sahib in and I've preserved and not restored it. I've kept it in its total state and preserved it. And that will go into a museum if we can find one that uh, is acceptable to the uh, to the Sikhs. But to think that we've got the story from start to finish and we've got artefacts from it is significant. It's probably the most religious uh, artefact in Australia, without doubt. From India so far? From India? Oh, no, from the, all over. Yeah, okay. And... Uh, and it's and the, the wagon will finish up in Benalla, and it's I think it's quite significant. And that that's the one that's my pet because I spent what almost two years preserving it, scraping it out with a little thing, all the dirt off with a little knife, and getting all the scientists, the CSIRO was involved. That's our uh, national, the government run. Uh, um, research department telling me what preservatives to use. The uh, museum was involved. A big uh, natural museum was also involved in it. So, and what what we hope will happen, uh, and I'm pretty sure it will, that there will be an annual festival for Siva Singh to uh, celebrate the reading of the first Akapath every year about the time that the reading took place. And that'll be perpetuated. And I might add to that, the research of Sivas to Singh took mm, at least 15 years to complete, from finding out just a little bit about him at um, cremations and being a hawker up to finding the photographs and then locating where that was taken and carrying it forward to more information and to the property where he lived, finding out exactly where it was. And so about 15 years you're looking at. And a lot of people just look at it these days and think, oh, that's great, you know, they must have got that overnight. (laughs) And how is it going now with your more current research where you are working with families to document their heritage and roots in Australia? Well, it's it's um, complex what we're doing at the moment. Lynn's read. We've been invited by um, uh, Rashmiya Bharti in Wilgulga wrote a, a history there of Wilgulga in New South Wales, and she's invited us to do a more in-depth history. So Lynn's in the process of doing more about Wilgulga and Coffs Harbour and going back to before the Sikhs were actually there, back to the beginnings of it. Um, and we're in, in the process of that, we have got a family that's come forward and we're doing their complete history in a totally different way. We've gone right back to the village 
and we're doing the history of what it was like in the village before they came here and including that and showing how a lot of that was carried on to Australia. So that's part of Len's research, but it's also a biography for that family that's requested it as well because we were interviewing them and they asked us to do that extra step. In, in what else is, um, and, and, and I've been contacted by people in England because um, another Punjabi was a Muslim, Monga Khan, and a lot of people have heard about Monga Khan because of some posters that were put up about him that was taken from our research, and they were asking was it part of their family, and now I'm doing the research. He was from Kashmir. We thought he was from the Punjab, but he was from Kashmir. And he, um, there was about 100 people that he's related to that came out here. So this has become another sort of research. We've gone back to the village. I'm doing it an opposite way. Instead of going from Australia to the village, I've now got access through people in England and Kashmir that we have invited another boy, Awais Hussain, to um, co-author with us and he was doing a little bit of his own family research and he goes to York University now. He's into linguistics. So between the two of us and with Lynn as well, we've been going back to the village and a lot of them have got photographs of their hawkers and shopkeepers that were out here. So we're finding information there that's helping us to unravel files that are here better. So it's a, we've, we're learning a, a new way of doing the research, not just doing a, a small amount of the history, we're getting the whole history. So th- that's uh, changed. Can I clarify something about tr- what Tris said? Well, Gorga as a banana area in New South Wales and it was developed by Sikhs and at one stage over 50% of the population of this town was Sikh uh, and now it's down about 30%. It's, it's a very big, fairly big town. They have two uh, Gurdwaras in there and um, it's, it's basically the, the centre of Sikhism in Australia. And we, we set up a museum, we were asked to uh, contribute to the museum, Sikh museum there, which we did. And then they asked us to do this research and it'll be the first book written uh, where most of the books, uh, the history that's been written is before they come to Australia and then after they've arrived. We're trying now to marry because when the Indians came to Australia, Sikhs included, they didn't come as migrants. They came here as itinerant workers with the intention of going home. And because the close-up-close-minity, I can't say that word, uh, between uh, India and Australia, even in sailing ship times, it was only six weeks, and they would every few years they'd go back to India and earn money in Australia, take it back to India, invested in their farms and things like that. When they need more money, they come to Australia and work again. So they're living in one foot each side of a barbed wire fence. And that caused problems in itself, uh, social and religious problems. And that's what we're now exploring. 
We've probably bored you silly with all this. <laughs> no, not at all. I think it's a fascinating discussion that is really clearing a lot of misconceptions one might have had regarding how this history unfolded. Well, a lot of them just think, oh, my relative went to Australia or Canada or England, but they don't really understand how they got there and how, where did they get the money from? Like A lot of them don't know these things, and these are the things we're adding to the research is how they managed to do that. Um, and it, it, it's sort of interesting even for us. We, we thought we'd be getting sick of it by now, but we find out new things every day. And how have some of the historical Australian migration laws and policies had an impact on these stories? Say, for example, the white Australia policy. Yeah, well, the white Australia policy, what happened is when that was brought in, Indians that were in Australia at that time or had been before could have access, no problems at all. It was, uh, and they could bring... After 1923, they could bring their wives and family to Australia, provided that they could, as it stands now, uh, as they could provide for them and have a house for them. But because they are itinerant workers, that was difficult. But um, the White Australia policy, the biggest impact of that was because they were unable to bring new people in. Uh, and there was a migration from Australia over a period of time back. The Indians went back to die. So the population diminished, but there are still, we've got families that have been uh, in Australia from the 1880s and and three or four generations, but it had a a profound effect on the migration. It brought it it to a halt. That was the intention. But basically I would argue that... there was some racism in it for, uh, on a government government level, but it was to maintain living living standards. And uh, even when uh, uh, it was brought down, the ones that were here supported it uh, to a certain extent because they were getting the benefits of the higher wages and comfortable living, and they didn't want that eroded. And then you get the ones like Siva Singh, who was, um, he was on the electoral roll, the British subject, he had land, he was on the, he he owned land, quite a bit of land, he was quite a wealthy man when he died and still living in his wagon. (laughs) He was renting out all his properties and still living in like a a, a six by three foot area to sleep. You can show him the wagon. Yeah, I'll show you later. (laughs) We've got it sitting out the back there. And and, um, he was struck off the roll in 1915 and didn't get back onto the roll till about 1923 and he fought for his right as a British subject. And that's where the Indians... Uh, were different to the Chinese and a lot of other uh, people from coloured backgrounds uh, because they were British subjects. And although they quite often had to fight for that right, they could come and go as long as they got a certificate of exemption to the dictation test. And that wasn't something that barred them. That was enabling them and it enabled them to be able to come back into the country and how grateful we are today for those tests because they've made such a fantastic record. Because they've got photos. They've got photographs where they're born, 
how long they've been here, where they worked. The, the records are so good. But yeah. the, the other thing with what, uh, the White Australia policy, most people, even academics write, they think it's, it was blanket racism right across the board. But racism in Australia was, the, the White Australia policy was by a racist attitude by the federal and state governments, by trade unions and by the churches who wanted a white Christian Protestant country in the South Pacific and the unions because they didn't want to, the working conditions eroded. But uh, the rest of the population, once the Indians win here, the hawkers and uh, that they, they were a treasure part of the community because they could play cricket. Most of them learned English very quickly. Uh, and they were religious. They may not have been Christian, but they were religious and good living, hardworking. But the biggest uh, benefit was the first migration, unlike now, came from farming, and they came into a farming country. And because of that, there's a universal brotherhood of farmers. You're close to land, you're close to nature, and that's why they got on... I'd say really well, really well, because well, we've got photos here of uh, women crying when uh, at the, the um, at cremations. My mother used to uh, wash the Indians uh, that came to our place, she used to wash the Sikhs' turban. And uh, her, her girlfriend, when the hawker that came to our place got elderly and couldn't work, she took him into her home and she, she was a... Uh, yeah, that was her specialty, nursing people in their old age. And she nursed him right up until she, they took him to hospital and he died a couple of weeks later. And I could name half a dozen people that right across Victoria that done the same. Uh, the chap that had the, uh, gave us a wagon, Seva Singh lived with the family. Capital Dev once told me that uh, he spoke about it and I talked to him over coffee later that he, he considers between 5 and 10% of all people in all countries are racist. The other 90, 95% are just like everybody else. And that's my argument is that uh, on a one-on-one, face-to-face basis, there is very little racism, but the instrumental, the institutional racism was had a drastic effect. Mm. And, and there were a lot of... Um sort of reports in newspapers and journalists used to hype up the White Australia policy. Sell newspapers. To sell their newspapers as well. But they'd take one incident and it might be reported many times in different ways, but they didn't report the sort of reaction that Len's telling you about, about how well they were getting on with um, their neighbours and how they were, in, you know, embraced in families and We've got people who have kept photographs of Indian hawkers that were here and called them uncle. Like, it, they became part of the family and they also helped them write letters home and there was a lot of that sort of interaction. Yeah, it sounds quite similar with what we're witnessing today with media portrayals and storytelling of the like in the news. That's true, yes. So I don't know if I can tell you any more about that. It's um, But there were a lot of posters done and things like that uh, and they used to have things like boy 
brands and, yeah. and things like that that you're not allowed to say now, and now they're regarded as racist. But at that time, it was just an accepted type of thing, I suppose. But what is racism at the time? At times develop and it's different, and there was racism in the world, but you have to look at the times as well. Like we've got people here wanting to rip down statues and things like that of what's happened in Captain the past. Cook. But if you change it, if you change history uh, and delete it, well, then you don't get a full story. They'd be better off to put up things alongside something that's happened before and show something good that did happen or something that could happen today that would be different instead of ripping everything down, I suppose. And just before we close, do you have a final message for our listeners? Help. <laughs> well, the, our biggest problem now, we're basically, we've, we've done nearly all the research. We need help to get it out into the community and have uh, not just the Indian community, but the Australian community and the worldwide community accept what we're writing because what's happening is academics are now writing, uh, they, they get our research and then they do their own thing with it and polluting it, but to get the true story out into mainstream uh, so it will be accepted and can't be uh, altered uh, in the coming years, the purity preserved and publicised. So, Rogers, there's one more thing too is I've connected with a boy in New Zealand that's doing the New Zealand research and we sort of help each other a bit, but he finds the same thing as us and he is a Sikh. Uh, you get It's very hard to find physical workers to help. It, it's, um, they like the result. People like the result. They like the photos. They like sharing everything, but the hard yakka, they don't like doing. He wouldn't know what Yakka meant. <laughs> <laughs> well, the hard work, the hard work of the research and that. They want to be out there earning their money, building their houses and having a good time and just have the result. But there's very few that will come and do the work and help. It's more about preserving the purity and getting the message out. All the help we can get with that, that's good. Yes. See, what you're doing is good. It, it's spreading a lot of news about different people and the way they work and what the results are. Well, thank you so much to you both, Len and Crystal, for coming on today and sharing your story and knowledge on this subject. It's amazing and very much inspiring to learn how much research you have unearthed from the archives and continue to unlock from the memories of the future generations. The documentation of this history is truly invaluable. And I really hope that more support comes your way from those that listen to this podcast and from those that are motivated to contribute to your great efforts. So thank you again. And last but not least, I would like to thank our sponsor, Six Student Learning, and the tens of thousands of followers across our social media channels that continue to motivate us to actively record and share Sikh history. We hope to continue to keep recording more podcasts and make more Sikh history accessible in audio format. So if you enjoyed this episode and would like to hear more, please share with others so that we can attract more supporters that in turn help us to generate more episodes. Thank you. Thank you.